Um, I expect you to pay better attention today because most of you sleep better in the rain. And so you should be alert now, uh, ready for this. Uh, we've started into a series on Ecclesiastes. And um, kind of as a lead into that, um, my heart for you as a pastor, as we study the word, is really clear. And we talked about this um, last week when we quoted Jesus, where he says, A good scribe is like somebody who could go in. Um, to their storeroom, and out of their storeroom, bring treasures, both new and old. And that's a verse that I've never heard taught before, or ever heard alluded to. Uh, But I think that's very true of what happens in the book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon comes, and out of the wealth of his experience, both moral failure and what God taught him, he's going to come to you and share some of that with him, even if it comes out of a place of his junk. And I would say this, is that it's a lot like garage sailing. And here in Colorado, in in my experience, garage sailing just just doesn't work. I don't know what it is, if it's just the people here are too wealthy, that they don't even care about making money, and they just take it out of the goodwill, or they throw it away. Uh, But poor folk in Oklahoma, they find treasures at garage sales. And you get up at 6 a.m., and you will go into somebody else's property, which otherwise might have a sign that says trespassers you know, will meet the Second Amendment or whatever. But this is a, an, an, um, an anomaly where you could come on their property and you might find a transmission to a 73 Chevy that you've been looking for your whole life. right? Or you're going to find a doily. And it's, it's just perfect. For what you've been looking for this doily your whole life. And so, like garage sailing becomes this treasure hunt, right? Where you're actually rummaging through somebody else's junk and you're looking for treasure. And I say that because this is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is going to lay out. Some of the stuff is it's going to be really messy. It's going to be all the wrong answers. And, and here's what it that's a benefit for us. Listen, young people, what you get in the book of Ecclesiastes is discounted wisdom, wisdom that's on sale, wisdom that's clearance. And here's why it's clearance. It already cost Solomon. So maybe if you're wise, it won't cost you the same suffering. If you are, listen to me, young people, if you're wise enough to listen to biblical wisdom you don't have to be the same kind of idiot he was. And, there, and there's a lot of older people in this room that would say, I wish I would have known what this book is saying when I was younger. Now some of you, you're going to be hard-headed, you're going to be bullish, you're going to be trapped in sin, and you're just going to have to prove all the worst verses of the Bible are true. You're going to have to drink in a little curse and a little bit of judgment on, on foolishness before that happens. But my heart for you as a pastor, no matter what age you are in here, is that you could look at the wisdom of God from Scripture, turn to God, and avoid greater suffering than what is necessary for your life. And so, it's a garage sailing kind of event today. And I would say, it, when, when you go garage sailing, and you're rummaging through somebody else's junk... I think it's a joyful work of discovery, right? And, and you want to almost be the first one racing there to get it, like it's Kmart in a blue light special. You will just elbow an old lady, 
all right? And so I want that kind of intensity as we jump into the Bible today. Um, let's ask for the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we're going to dive into it. Cool? All right. Um, dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth under the sun as it is in heaven. God, we want heaven where your will is perfectly done. You are obeyed and treasured and loved. And good and blessing just flows out of that. God, we're so exhausted from the chasing after the wind and the things under the sun. Would you give us something um, beyond the material world? Would you give us your Holy Spirit so that we would be enabled to understand your scriptures, that we might be enabled to obey your scriptures? God, would you come and help us to wade through Solomon's junk that we could find the treasure for our own lives? God, would you um, cause us to give up on all the worldliness that we can say with all of our hearts that Jesus is enough for us? So, um, as we come today, would you make it all about Jesus? Would you convict us of sin and bring about the same kind of repentance that Solomon experienced? We ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 12 through 18. We're going to finish up chapter 1. But first, I want to jog a little bit about where we were last week and kind of set the context for where we want to go today. One thing that maybe you're unfamiliar with because you're not Jewish is that there are five books, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations that were called the Megaloth. These are five, basically called five scrolls. And these five scrolls were read at particular high, holy, sacred time. Ecclesiastes, being one of the Megaloth, or the five scrolls, was the one read by rabbis during Pentecost. This book gets its name from preacher, or collector, or gatherer. The word in Greek, ekklesia, means the called out or gathered ones, which we translate as church. So literally, the, the word ekklesia means church, this could mean church. But ecclesia, where we get like ecumenical or uh, like Ecclesiastes here, is the preacher or collector who gathers the church together and organizes them. And so we talked about that this is not as much just like someone coming to teach you. It's almost like a philosophy professor who is coming to ask hard questions using the Socratic method to really push the buttons of the life choices that you've made. And we're going to get to the biggest kinds of questions. Not just does God exist, but does God really matter? Can you live a life of purpose and meaning apart from knowing the Creator who hardwired that meaning into your existence? So he's just going to use that Socratic method and ask a little bit of questions about the logical conclusions of the decisions that each of us are making about our lives. Where we're attaching hope, where we're attaching our meaning. And so, one of the things that Ecclesiastes is going to do for us, it's going to give us oftentimes more questions than answers. That is, it's meant to create an appetite for the gospel. Where when we, we try the junk food of the world, we just leave unsatisfied, such that we hunger after righteousness. Everybody tracking so far? So we talked about this, if... The Gospel of Mark was two years in a Prius, and it hummed a certain way down the road. This is a Range Rover Jeep from 77 
It's going to be a little bit clunky going up a mountain, and it's going to feel different than the other books that were narrative before. It's going to be philosophical musings, and for some of us that went to college, philosophy class may have been your least favorite class that you took in all of your liberal arts studies. But long before Socrates, Aristotle, or Plato among the Greeks, we have this Hebrew wisdom literature given by God so that we might be a people not foolish but wise. Now inside of this, there's two main keys to understanding this book. And if you don't get these keys, this book is just going to leave you really depressed and looking for sharp objects. Okay, so you don't, don't miss these keys. The first key is the phrase, under the sun, that we see in verse 3. Okay, under the sun. What is this talking about? This is that underneath the sun, this is life apart from God or heaven or any of that stuff. If you just look at the material universe, it's a strict secularism under the sun. It's sort of like its own ecosystem, which to me, this is for the kids and some of the adults that didn't grow up. It's like under the sea. You know where that comes from? Under the sea? See, if I said it in a Jamaican accent, you would get it. Which I know it's controversial right now that Little Mermaid has changed skin colors. Which I think is even more offensive because... Do you know that a mermaid is just a demon under the water? And it's... How is that not racing? The only princess we gave him was a sea demon with a foot fetish. It's, I, I, don't, I don't actually care what color Ariel is. For me, it's important that that crab stays Jamaican. It's like, but under the sea, if you think about ocean life, ocean life is its own ecosystem. It has its own life and, and hierarchy. It's got its own things. And a lot of times... It, we would talk about it differentiated from things outside of the sea. And that's kind of what this is doing. He's got under the sun in a test tube to run an experiment on the ecosystem of life without God. And how's that going for us, humanity? And, and so that's where it's going to come into. And the, the argument that he's going to make from that is what is the gain in verse... What is the gain by all of our toil that's under that sun? So this is an economical spreadsheet. Are you in the red? Are you in the black? What's the benefit? And here's the deal. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's the same argument here. Work yourself to the bone. Pour yourself into wisdom or folly. Drink till you get drunk. Like chase after building things. Chase... Chase after anything else as ultimate. And what gain is it if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? This is the, this is the attack that Solomon is waging against false hopes and things other than God. And, and so he goes even into how dumb we are. Because he can cycle in patterns in nature. And he says like the wind goes on a circuit. It's like the sun rises and... It's like putting it this way. It's like you do the laundry, you fold the laundry, and then somehow miraculously you still have laundry to do and to fold. To put a, and then you get more laundry. Kids, have you ever figured out that your room is never clean? Right? It's just on a, it's on a cycle. <clears throat> I should crack there. That's <clears throat> puberty kicking in. Cycle. It's on a cycle. 
right? And it just seems like all this toy, doesn't it feel never ending? Come on, anybody, the dishes are still in the sink while you're here at church? And, and, and he says, you're in these cycles and you don't even see the cycles in creation that the sea is never full and it's on this thing because, as Roman 1 says, you don't look at the created thing and allow that to lead you to the creator and to worship. You look at the created thing and says, well, that's all there is. And you can find that in every university in America, that philosophy. And then you wonder why we take more antidepressants than any other um, people in human history. Okay, so that comes into it. Then he says that there's nothing new under the sun. And for some of us, this was a weird passage. He's like, surely we got iPhones. But really, all technology is is a development of what has already existed. We said that the iPhone is nothing more than an upgrade to the carrier pigeon. It's taking data from one place to the other. That there's nothing new under the sun. At fundamental level, we are still human. The earth is the earth and God is God. What's fascinating about this is what then Jesus' claim is in Revelation 21.5, me and Brother Phil talked about, is that Jesus comes and says, Behold, I make all things new. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that? Well, here's the thing. Amongst men, we're making nothing new. The one alone, the one person alone who can make things new, that's God. And he says in Revelation, I've come to make all things new. Because I'm not like you. I'm not limited like you are. Okay, so and then he ends in, in this thing about there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after in verse 11. So here's the deal. It's the argument at the end, and it, it kind of closes this, is the argument of Les Miserables. Will we be remembered when we die? Right? That's the question. And we kind of have this ache in our life. It's like, will we be remembered? Will my friends remember me? Will my kids remember me? Will my coworkers remember me? And we, we want to be remembered. And the argument is no. Under the sun, no. And we just floated this idea out there that name for me five people that won gold in the last Olympics. Name for me the fi- first five vice presidents. Right? And at the same time that he's making that, that argument under the sun, Jesus is going to come and say something just radically different. He's going to say, things like, is it actually written on the front of this? Do this in remembrance of me? I meant to look before I came up here. I'm on the other side. That there are things worth remembering. Things that are eternally remembered. Something's worth not forgetting. Or we could come to Isaiah 49, 15, where your God says to his people, I will not forget you. Doesn't that hit? That some of you, if I asked you to name your third cousin right now, you forgot their name and they're alive. But God says, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. God is not forgetful. That while under the sun, all kinds of people are going to let you slip slip their mind. God's mind doesn't slip. 
that in Christ we are eternally remembered. Isn't that powerful? And so it's just this, again, the book of Ecclesiastes creates this appetite for God because we've just so been so dissatisfied with humanity. And the result of this kind of depression of not being remembered and no new thing under the sun and it's all a wind is this second key thing for understanding this whole book. It's the word havel, havel. And it's hard to translate because depending on its context, you really have to read the context to understand how it's being used. The literal of havel is a vapor, it's smoke, it's mist. It's like if um, one of those like hippies from Colorado had their pipe and they blew their pipe out and then you tried to grab the smoke. Can you grab it? No. But is it a thing? It's like, yeah, and it seems like it has a shape, but the moment you try to grab it, it gets, it, it eludes you, right? Um, and th- so there's a literal vapor smoke idea, and then there's a figurative that it, it, Havel stands for something transitory, something frustrating, something meaningless, something vain. And so the Bible uses it all kinds of different ways. If you go into Jeremiah 16, 19 and Zechariah 10, 2, the word Havel is connected to idolatry. It's this idea that when you make the created thing or anything other than the creator ultimate in your life, that is the definition of idolatry. So Havel in those other passages talks about the idolatry of in your affections having something in your affections higher than God. See, if I come to idolatry and I just say, don't make golden calves, most of you are good unless it's a bronco and it's orange. Most of you are good. But if I come to you and say idolatry is actually having something in your affections higher than God, now we got a problem. we got an idolatry problem. And that's exactly what this book and Havel is talking about, is that if you think about a vanity mirror, it's reflecting me. It's Vanity is this idea of like, I take what God has gifted, and instead of using it as means to know Him and glorify Him, I let those things terminate on my pleasure in serving me. They're idols. It's Havel. And doing that is like chasing the wind, y'all. It's like just about the time you think you get the idol, it's gone, and it doesn't deliver. And so these are kind of two terms that are important for understanding this book. Now, one thing I would note that I didn't note last week is that Ecclesiastes, to my knowledge, is not directly quoted in the New Testament, but it is alluded to because Jesus is going to teach from Solomon's life. But more importantly, it's heavily alluded to in Romans 8.20, which should be up on the next slide. Um, Romans 8.20 heavily alludes to it. For creation was subjected to futility. And a lot of people understand that this is exactly the same sort of futility that Havel is talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Right? That there is a role that that futility is going to play in pushing you, uh, put it like this, the frustrating curse of God is meant to encourage you to repent. Right? When you rebel against God's design and it doesn't go good for you, that's meant to nudge you in the direction of repentance. Alright? So here in 
below the sun, it's going to look in the book of Ecclesiastes as though nothing is quite right. And we turn means into ends. And so what the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is going to do is he's going to try to dash your false hopes on the rock of truth. He's going to try to dash your false hopes on the rock of truth. Um, Ecclesiastes is going to play a destructive role. Like there's lots of books in the Bible that are encouraging. They construct in your life. They build hope. They build things in your life. Ecclesiastes is meant to be a wrecking ball to destroy some things in your life. Some false hopes that if you hold on to them, they will curse you. All right, so... Here's an explanation, and then we'll kind of get, look at the text. Um, expectations, here's an argument that I'll make. Expectation and hopes are really not understood until they are dashed. Like, you almost don't know how high your hopes are or how high your expectations are until they're dashed. All right? Here's an illustration that I'll use from my life that maybe none of you will relate to. In the, in the 20th century, there was a book written by a guy named Gerald Tolkien called Lord of the Rings. And I read it, okay? And I've read The Hobbit. And some of you, you were alive at that time, okay? I inherited this as a part of Western literature. He made another book called The Cimmerillion. I've read almost every single thing uh, that he wrote that was not his, like, commentaries. Because that stuff is too far geeky down the nerd rabbit hole, okay? But I read all this stuff. And then they made the books in the two... Or they made the movies... Books. Made the movies in the 2000s called The Lord of the Rings. And it got, like, a bazillion... Oscars. Is that what they get? Oscars. It got, it got awards. It was really good. Recently, Amazon came out with a series called The Rings of Power based off J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien's work. They, they spent, a, and this is not figurative, they spent over a billion dollars. Just a billion. To make this series. How high were my hopes? Pretty high up there. Right? And then I watched it. And I realized how high my hopes actually were. Because they plummeted to the ground. And how terrible the series is. Some of you will relate to this. Because y'all, y'all watched Star Wars in 1977. Anybody? And then, then they came out with the new ones. And somebody had the idea of Jar Jar Binks being in that thing. Some of you had a mus- musical artist that you loved. Their first album was, they just crushed it. And then they release their next album. And you're like, yeah, oh, ouch. Yeah, you could measure how your disappointment with plummeting to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Right? You didn't know that you had all this hope. You didn't have all this expectation until it got disappointed. Right? We use these words. Your hopes were dashed. It plunged. It was a flop. Now, let me ask you this, in light of this book, what if it's not a movie that flops, but what if it's your life? We had hopes about career and relationships, kids. We had all these hopes, and we wrapped up in there, and then they they were disappointed. And we didn't know that we had all this vested interest until it didn't. So we got the bill, right? Before it was your life, it was Solomon's. 
Before it was your life that flopped, it was Solomon's. Verse 12. I, the preacher, same word, Ecclesiastes, have been the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay? We'll talk more about that next week. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done, here's our key phrase again, under heaven. It is an unhappy business, futility, havel, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now pause, does it have to be? No. 224 is going to say that there is a way to enjoy what is fleeting. But without God, you will never enjoy what is fleeting and transitory, right? So I'm going to argue that this book is fighting for your joy. It's just going to walk you through depression first. All right, so under heaven, it's unhappy business. I have seen everything that is done, here's our other phrase, under the sun. And behold, all is, second, key phrase, vanity, havel, used 38 times throughout this book. It's going to come all the way through this book. And a striving after the wind. It's like a dog chasing the car's tire. If it caught the tire, it wouldn't even know what to do with it if it got it. That's like your Monday. Like 15. And what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. So let's back up first and let's start here. I, the preacher, Solomon never mentions his name, but there's only one person in human history that could fit this bill. A king over Israel in Jerusalem, a son of David. So before we maybe talk about what he's going to say here, let's get caller ID on who's calling us here. Because you and I both know, depending on who's calling you, whether you answer or hang up, or you speak differently if it's your mama or your boss. Or maybe that one's actually the same. So let's get his resume and look at his slides. One of the first things, look at the next slide. Um, Just a couple little things. Some famous art um, from Solomon. He was said to have a throne of ivory and gold. And so just ancient art. Go to the next one. Uh, This is maybe him a little bit older, wiser. This is probably him writing Ecclesiastes. It just gave him gray hair, um, his own handwriting. Go to the next one. This is him famously deciding between uh, a baby snatcher in the Old Testament. Um, kind of praise for his wisdom there. Go to the next slide. One of the things about Solomon is when he was a young man, he took the throne. And he had God approach him and give him the opportunity to ask for anything. And now, oh my Lord, you have made your servant king in place of David's father, who's put on David's throne. Although I am but a little child, I'm a youth. I do not know how to go out or come in. By the way, that's a really important phrase for the Messiah. If you talk about Jesus' teaching on the shepherding, how he's the good shepherd, he knows how to lead people out and bring them in. There's a whole teaching on that. And your servant is in the midst of your people who you've chosen. A great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. That is, like the church is so big, he's like, I don't even know how to count all these people. Give your servant, therefore, this is what he asks, an understanding mind to govern your people. That I may discern between good and evil. And for who is able to govern this, your great people. Basically, he gets put in a leadership position that's bigger than his britches. And he's like, God, if you don't give me wisdom, I got no chance of pastoring these people. 
1 Kings 3. I have pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. This is how much God loves wisdom. Behold, I will now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you have been before you and none shall arise after you. I mean, this brother started out on third base. Right? Now, we can learn more about Solomon if you want a deep study here. 1 Kings 1-11, through 2 Chronicles 1-9, through 2 Samuel 7 and 11-12. through 12. But the first thing that we're going to learn about Solomon is that his mother was Bathsheba. And so his like, family life starts out a little bit rocky because his father killed his mother's first husband. Right? So it just went full Jerry Springer on us. Right? And he committed adultery with his mother before he married her. And so if you think heading into the holidays it's complicated and awkward for you... This is what he grew up with. His dad's repentance in Psalm 51 is recorded in the Psalms and would be something that was saying in worship services. Right? Imagine a president's public apology being a part of our liturgy. Right? I mean, that's, that's hard. He asked God for wisdom and to serve the church well. He wrote three books that we know of. Song of Solomon, we talked about this. This is when he's young and in love. And as young men do, they write poems. And it's, it's, it's all about one woman, right? The it girl, the Marilyn Monroe of his day. Almost said Marilyn Manson. That would have been a huge mistake. Um, right? The it girl. I mean, he was all about this girl. And then later in life, he's had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He wrote some of the Proverbs as a wise son. So it's like his high school and college education that he added and then, at the end of his life, tradition says that he wrote Ecclesiastes, which is like him from the place of regret sharing all the things that he didn't do right. Because you know that th there's a difference between knowing what's right to do and then actually doing it yourself, right? And so, he was considered, outside of Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived. People came in history from all over the world to hear his songs and wise sayings. By the way, every single piece of music you've ever listened to has worldview and a claim on truth in it. There is no such thing as Christian music because music can't get baptized. There is just music that says things that are true and music that doesn't. People came from all over the world to hear his music and his sayings. In 1 Kings 4, he had over 3,000 proverbs that he wrote and 1,005 songs. Jesus actually used Solomon in this sense to talk about the gospel. Because he said people would travel over land and see great distances, like the Queen of Sheba who Solomon met, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But now, in Jesus Christ, there is one greater than Solomon. And the Pharisees wouldn't walk across the street to hear what he had to say. See, there's an indictment that we care all the time about self-help and wise sayings on the internet or motivational posters, but we don't go to God's word to hear the one that is truly wise in Jesus. And Jesus is indicting our sinful hearts because we don't want to hear the truth. We want to hear stuff that agrees with us. 
God used this man Solomon to build his holy and sacred temple. It was said and estimated among some scholars that 153,000 men worked for 13 years to build the temple. By the way, he spends twice as long as that to build his own house. Which is sort of a sign of the things to come. When men care more about their house than they do about God's house. His personal staff was estimated by some at 35,000 people attended him. Right? He met the Queen of Sheba. He had this gold and ivory throne. Ships from all over the world brought him gold and horses and anything that he wanted. He turned Jerusalem into the World Trade Center. It was a commercial hub. It was Wall Street. Anything that he wanted, he got. He turned Jerusalem not only into a um, trade center, but also an intellectual hub. It's like the Oxford of its day. It's the Google search bars where people came to learn them something. Right? It's like Bayfield Library with a better budget somehow. Right? He didn't just turn into that, but it was a place where all of his sexual desires were attended to. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you don't know what a concubine is, ask your parents at home. It's a side chick. So, like desperate housewives has nothing on Solomon. He could have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with different women for a year. It's like the bachelor on steroids. Right? And we could talk about love languages. If any of these ladies, it was quality time, good luck. Where did all that come from? Well, the the thing about it is, the wives is bad, but what is worse is the heart behind it. Solomon used intermarriage with neighbors to build political alliances. He intermarried with the people around him, the foreign women, because they were princesses, And if he had one of them as a wife, that means that border was secure or that ally or that trade partner. So he he had all these wives and concubines because he was, he didn't trust God to protect him. He trusted his own wisdom. And it made all the sense in the world to marry these foreign women, which God throughout the Bible has said over and again, Do not marry unbelievers. And I've only dealt with people who think they're the exception to that rule my whole ministry. My whole ministry, I've had Christians come to me to convince me of why they should marry an unbeliever. As though it's not going to go the same exact direction for them. And by the way, this has nothing to do with race and how much melanin those people or Solomon had in this. It's nothing to do with skin color. It had to do with worship. Because who you marry affects your worship. Amen or oh me. It affected their worship. And it led him into apostasy. He's going woman after woman. And it pulled, as 1 Kings 11 said, his heart away from God. Because here's the thing. Your worship doesn't affect your family. Who's going to disciple your kids? And which God are they going to disciple them towards? The God of culture, false gods, or the true and living God? This led to eventually babies 
being killed in Israel. See, there's no new thing under the sun. We've got to have a pro-life rally in Durango because the same idolatry exists today. The same demonic thing exists today. And when they abandon the truth of God for a lie, it's more suffering for the innocent and the weak, not less. Same thing here. By the end of Solomon's life, there was a planned parenthood within an eyeshot of the temple. Why? Because these women ripped his heart in every direction except for God. I, would tell, I, I don't know how to say this, but especially for young people here, more important than any career you choose, be a fireman, a cheerleader, not a cheerleader, a doctor, a lawyer, it doesn't matter what you do in your career. Listen to me, young people. More important than that is having a godly spouse. More important than your, for, any, for your flourishing, for your ministry, for your life, is who you marry. Get someone who loves Jesus. And I promise you, you could work at Starbucks and have a great existence. But I, I promise you, you marry somebody with a different worldview, serving a different God, going in a different direction, and you can make a million dollars a year, and you would rather live on the corner of the roof of the house. I don't know. I know you think you're the exception of the rule, but bet me. This is what happens to Solomon. And it not just doesn't go for him. Because he's in a leadership position, it goes bad for it, the nation of Israel. As he leads them into the apostasy that he had in his own heart. So here's the thing in Ecclesiastes. The tradition is going to say, here at this thing, this preacher, king over Israel and Jerusalem, he's older and he's repentant and he's contemplating the mistakes in what he learned. So this is where 13 comes in. I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom in all that's done and Here's what happens without God. It's just unhappy. It's an unhappy business. I've seen everything under the sun. It's all vanity. It's a chasing of the wind. Don't go this way. Now look, he says what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is 1,000% true. If you're under the sun without God and you're crooked and you're evil and you're sinful... You can't straighten yourself. You're the problem. How are you going to fix yourself if you're the problem? If you're crooked, how are you going to make yourself straight? How are you going to even know what straight is? If you're falling short and you're lacking, how can you count up to what you need to do in order to be made right? Let me put it to you this way. Has anybody, since the time they've been born, been keeping count of all their sins? You got a notch somewhere, like a, a, a page open in your iPhone, it's like, oh, this is 4,705. Anybody keeping count? How about last week? Anybody got a good count? Two, three thousand sins? G- give me a ballpark, anybody? Who's keeping count? No. So... If we're struggling to keep count with what we're falling short, how in the world would we ever know what we need to be made right? Left to yourself, man, you cannot fix yourself. That's what he's saying. Under heaven, there's no men fixing themselves. They're just rearranging chairs on the Titanic. They're trading sins for other sins that are easier to hide or that are more celebrated by culture. 
all have fallen short of the glory of God. And they can't make up in accounting what we've fallen short of. God alone makes crooked people like us straight. God alone fills up in our lives what is lacking. Because He's got an immeasurable surplus of grace. You, you got limited resources and a bad memory. He's coming in saying you're, you all fall short of the glory of God. And you can't fix yourself. That's vanity talking. Well, this gets into maybe the main thrust of what this section is about. It's about wisdom. And, and that's important for us, right? Because let's define wisdom. It's kind of like being clever. It's a discerning heart. It's skillful. It's savvy. It, it's kind of hard to get wisdom with one word. Wisdom is best defined by what it does. Here's what wisdom is. Wisdom fixes things. Doesn't it? Knowledge is like understanding how things work. But wisdom is taking all that and actually employing it in such a way that it fixes a situation. Here's what his argument is going to be. Verse 18 or 16. I said in my heart, by the way, if you don't have God in your heart, the only voice that you really get left to is your own. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. Now that's shady right there to me. Because who's been in Jerusalem before him? Just his dad. Right? Just they, I mean, if you, if you, the Jebusites who had Jerusalem before him, I guess you could count them and the kings that came before. But really he's throwing shade at his dad. You know, all those that came before me. It's like, dude, I'm the only one. David's like, I'm the only one that was there. All right? And my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Right? And I applied my heart to know wisdom and know madness and folly. We'll get into that next week. And I perceive that this is also a striving at, this is Havel. This is striving after the wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Now that's tough for us, right? Because we're just thinking by default, wisdom's always good. Now, he's going to come later and say, yeah, if you've got to choose between wisdom and being an idiot, wisdom all day, brother, right? But what he's talking about is the way in which wisdom is, is vexing. Like the more that you know and the more that you think you can fix it, the more frustrated you become when it, you can't fix everything. Right? Is this some of you when you go to work and it just feels like you just show up and there's just, it, like, your work invents new ways to kill itself, you know? And you just feel like you, you put out fires only for another one to be lit. And you, it doesn't matter how smart you are or how capable you are, you plunge in that. How about this? So, some of you that are older, tell me. When you were young, didn't you think that the generation before you messed it up and you were going to fix it? You just had to get the right candidates and vote the right way and get the right people in and they were going to fix it. And how about young people here today? Everybody in their 20s and 30s, they think the generate you guys messed it up and all they got to do is they just got to fix it. 
what age exactly do you get disillusioned with politics? I'm waiting to find out. That you, you start to set back and you realize, oh wait, those people are as dumb as I am. And now I'm going to send them to fix what's wrong here? Here's the word, biblical word, vexation. It, it vexes us. It's because, it, and here's the thing, he's, he loves wisdom. But he's talking about like a worldly wisdom and your knowledge and your skill to jump in there and fix it. And he's like, you are going to get massively disappointed because even the things that you think you can fix are not the deepest things that need fixing. That you can't even touch. It takes somebody outside yourself to come in and fix this. Otherwise, you're drinking your own bath water here. It's vexation. I mean, and this is why we, we actually have phrases that talk about this in our own vernacular. Have you ever heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss? Right? Because once you actually get into it, you realize it's way messier. It's way more complicated. There's much more issues. And you're like, I think I would just rather not know. And that's kind of what he's talking about. Here's the thing. Socrates was a famous philosopher and looked at a lot of the same things that Solomon is going to look at here. And by the end of his life, he is known as committing suicide with Hemlock. Why? Because the more that he looked at the problem and the more he tried to solve it, the more it vexed his soul. And he didn't have God. He didn't know what to do with it. So Solomon defines maybe what it does. It problem solves. And even though we're going to talk about wisdom being good and having its place, I mean, I would prefer that each of you, when you go to work on Monday, that you be highly skillful rather than being an idiot that's going to get like an arm chopped off. All right? It's better to be wise than a fool, but by all means. But if we rest in our ability to fix things and we go at life as though it all depends on us, and we much less come to fix what is crooked and lacking inside of us, we are going to be jacked up and sorrowful by the end. Amen? Have you tried to fix yourself before and landed on that word vex? Have you landed on sorrow yet? Because you feel like no matter how hard you try, you just couldn't fix yourself? That's what our brother's doing for us here. He's taking us to that place. It was funny, I, I talked about this book after church last Sunday, and there was um, some different groups that were at a Mexican restaurant. And it was surprising to me how many people talked about how much they loved this book. At the same time, I don't think anybody that I talked to had actually heard anybody preach straight through this book. But a lot of people had read it and valued it. And one of the things that some of the people I was talking to said about how much this book led them to joy by leading them to quit. Like there's things that they were doing in their life they were on the hamster wheel, and this book led them to give up and to quit those things so that they might have what really matters. And I think that's where God vex, allows us to be vexed with our own wisdom so that we look for a wisdom outside of ourselves, for a leadership outside of us. Um, okay. Here's how I would put this. Um, I I follow a couple sports teams, all right. Like, and they're not my main one's not doing well. And literally every time one of my team loses, a Roderick calls me or texts me. 
okay? Vexes, right? But here's the, here's the problem. I try as a pastor to not pay that close attention to sports, but I do, okay? Um, I have a couple teams, and here's the danger. You can watch the team and get to know the players on the team. You know where they went to high school. Some guys, like, they know the stats of what they did in college. They get to the pros. By the way, and those brothers, they always tell me they can't study the Bible. But they can quote what a 22-year-old did at a high school. That's a, that's a pastor rant. That's on the side, okay? But you, you get to know, and you get vested in this team and the players and everything else. And the more that you know about that team, don't you start to say, oh, if they only ran the ball more. Because you're so wise. You know exactly how to fix them. And it's weird that no NFL franchise has ever called you for your input. That's just weird. Right? Your favorite sport, they don't care what you think. And isn't it? You know all of this stuff and you know how to fix them. And you can do nothing. And then they don't get it, go to the Super Bowl year after year after year. See, actually the more that you know, the more that you think you know how to fix it, the more vexed and limited you feel. I put it this way. I've lived in another country that I've come to love, multiple countries that I love very dearly. Um, I love France. Uh, I will always love France. And um, if I get a chance, I, I miss friends there. I, um, just recently, um, the dollar passed the euro in value, um, where your American dollar is worth more than the euro. I don't think that that's a sign of good things, but I'll take it, all right? And so I wrote a bunch of my friends, like, showing that the dollar is worth more than the euro in France. And I said, it's called soccer now, by the way. Um, and so, but I love France. I love the language. I love the people. It's the most beautiful country. Um, I absolutely love France. Do you know, the more that you learn about that culture and then you see its spiritual decay, and you see a terrorist attack, you see natural disasters there, and you can't fix it. It's vexing. It's like the more that you know and the more that you think you can do, you just feel so handicapped. This is what he's talking about. It's like you, you just watch the news and you enjoy your newfound like hobby of depression. Just You watch the news and you're like, what can I do about that? The more we know, the more vexed we are when we aren't wise enough to fix it. And we don't trust God to do it. So here's the thing. When God came to fix humanity, he sent the prince of heaven from outside, from, not from under the sun alone. He was fully man, but he was fully God. And he came and took the cross for our sins, died and buried the thing that had to die. He fixed in whole wisdom what we could not fix. And he rose from the grave, giving us new life. See, the argument is that we need something that's not under the sun, but something that's beyond it to come in and fix what we have broken. Let me tell you a little thing about Jesus here from Ecclesiastes, and we'll be done. Jesus is the greater preacher. In him is collected all treasures of wisdom. And he, and he alone, gathers the, sh the church as a shepherd gathers his sheep. Jesus is the wise son 
whom all the righteous Proverbs point to. In the same way that all the wicked and foolish Proverbs point to us. He is Hagia Sophia. That language means holy wisdom. There's a church in Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, named Hagia Sophia. And it's the picture of the holy wisdom of heaven coming to earth. He is the holy wisdom. Come down. And he's the missing puzzle piece to all the riddles. And he's the true wisdom that all the philosophers seek. He's in the answer to the most important questions that man can ask himself. He's the logos and the order to our logic. He's everything that... Through him everything was made. Our intellect was made by his intelligence. He's the reason behind our reason. Apart from him, you are nothing more but a slave to passing vanities. Wisdom without him is beyond you. Fools reject him to their own destruction. Jesus is a better son of David who is more wise and more obedient than Solomon. He is a better king and he has a better Jerusalem that we are invited to be citizens of by faith. When God judges a nation, he sends a wicked and foolish ruler. Let me say that again. When God judges a nation, he sends a wicked and foolish ruler. When God came to bless your soul, He sent you the King. Let me pray for you. With heads bowed, eyes closed, just between you and the Lord. Some of my type A people in here you just do not agree with me today and you don't agree with the Bible because you think if you just had a little bit more control, you could fix it. If you just had a little more time, you could get it. Church, would you let go today? Would you give up on your own ability to fix you and let God have your soul? I'm going to pray for you and if there's some things you need to repent of in your own heart I just want to invite you through the word of God to respond to the Holy Spirit who is prompting things in your heart dear Heavenly Father hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven come and fix us Come, make the crooked straight. Come, and by grace, fill up what is lacking. Come, and satisfy us in ways nothing in this world ever will. God, these are your people, sheep of your pasture, ones whom you've collected for yourself. Lead them to come in and to go out. 
and turn them in the direction you want them to go. Do all this for your beautiful name. We pray. Everybody said, Amen. Would you stand?